yeah. Nice, nice. How are we? How about the Broncos? I uh, am not normally a superstitious person except as it pertains to sporting events, and I would like to point something out. Two years ago, we went to the Super Bowl. Jim Bergen preached on that weekend. <laughs> this year, we go to the Super Bowl. Look how it turned out, all right? So just, just saying for future reference, for future reference. If they go back to the Super Bowl again, we'll all pay to send Jim somewhere, Africa, wherever, you know? So, hey, uh, let's, uh, let's pray, and then we'll dive into this, uh, this series that we kicked off last week. Father God, uh, we thank you for who you are, and we thank you for what you've done in our lives. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives. And Father, uh, as we pray around here all the time, uh, we just want to open up your word tonight. We want to find something uh, in, in your word that we can apply to our lives, something that will change our lives for the better so that we can be uh, closer with you, uh, so that uh, we can see you for who you really are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week we kicked off this new series called Behind the Curtain, where we're going to be working our way through this New Testament book called Hebrews. And it's a very, it's a very mysterious book. It's, it's kind of a challenging book to read. I've had some people this week tell me, yeah, we're going to read it between now and, and Easter, and it's really, really difficult to read and things like that. Just hang in there with it as we, as we unpack this. And we got the concept of this series from Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, which says this, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place where behind the curtain and that's what we've been talking about we talked about how the original recipients of this letter they understood that terminology that was like second nature to them to, to hear that they understood what that what that meant it was that language is based on the tabernacle and later the way the temple was designed and we kind of walked our way through the tabernacle last week and talked about those different areas but the place where God's presence was was separated from the rest of the tabernacle by this huge curtain. And only, remember this, only the high priest could go behind the curtain one time a year on one specific day known as the Day of Atonement. So it turns out that all the people who read this letter to the Hebrews were a lot like us. They had this profound sense that they were separated from God. They had this profound sense of, of disconnection from God. So we also learned last week that Jesus is our ultimate high priest. He's, he's talked about over and over and over again in the book of Hebrews as our high priest. He's the king of righteousness and the prince of peace. He's all those things in the order of this famous priest from the Old Testament named Melchizedek, who was the prince or the, the king and the priest of a town called Salem, which means peace, and his name Melchizedek meant king of righteousness. And so Jesus is, is a lot like that. Here, here's when you put these two verses together, what you have. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a what? High priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what we talked about was this, when Jesus takes us behind the curtain and he gives us access to God's presence, what we find there is a million beautiful things. But we're going to spend some time in this series unpacking at least a few of those things. And the thing that we unpacked last week was we find a good father. A good father with good intentions for his people, a good father who wants to protect his people, and a good father who wants to give good gifts to his people. So we looked at this in Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Remember this? He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the, power, by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
So since Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, and we're not going to blind you this week, all right? He's the exact imprint of God's nature. In other words, if you want to know anything about the character of God, all you have to do is look to Jesus. So that's what we've committed to in this series, is between now and Easter, if we want to understand God the Father better, what we're going to do according to the Bible, the best way to do that is to understand God the Son. If we want to understand God the Father's intentions towards us, we have to look towards God the Son. So today what I want to do is I want to jump into something I promised we'd talk more about this week. It's one of the things that we find when Jesus takes us behind the curtain and gives us access to this good father. When we have access to this good father, one of the first things that we receive is this. We are made clean. We're made clean. Go back to the verse. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That word purification is all about the fact that that God takes us who feel so unclean and unworthy and ashamed and he cleans us up. He he makes us clean. The word purification in the Greek is actually the word katharismos, which is where we get our word cathartic from. It means to make clean and pure, to remove the guilt of sin. And all of this was foreshadowed back in the tabernacle on that famous day of atonement that we talked a little bit about last week. Remember this? On that day, the high priest would make a sacrifice of a bull on behalf of his own sins. Because he's a man like everybody else, he had sin in his life just like everybody else, and so he had to make sacrifice for his sins. Then he would take two goats, and the first goat he would sacrifice for the sins of the people. And that goat was slaughtered and sacrificed as an example of God's wrath being poured out Not on his people, but instead on that goat. And that's where we got that phrase, substitutionary atonement. The goat substituted for the people. That's also an example of another really cool theological word, which is this, propitiation. Which means this, it means absorbing punishment. Absorbing punishment. But then there was a second goat. Remember this? And the high priest would would take that goat, lay his hands on the goat, and he would confess. He would literally speak out loud the sins of the people. And I don't think the high priest spoke in really flowery language. I don't, I don't think he spoke in some sort of coded language. I think he spoke about real sins that re, real people experienced in real ways. So if you, if you study back in the Old Testament, the Hebrew people and their lives, they were as jacked up as we are. They did the same things we did, sometimes better and more often, all right? They, they, they were sinful, broken people just like us. So when he's confessing the sins of the people out loud in front of the people, he's confessing things like adultery and abuse and rape and incest and lying and slander and idolatry and lust and stealing and self-righteousness and pride and disobedience and false religion and a million of other things. Whatever you can fathom, he was confessing. He's speaking out loud. And the people are watching this. They're listening to this. They're hearing their sins spoken out loud that he's confessing. Their shame in that moment is being exposed. He, they had to be thinking in that moment, oh, he's, he's praying about me. He's confessing my sin. He's confessing what I've done. He's confessing what I didn't do. He's confessing what was done to me. And when they looked at that goat, as this is happening, he's holding on to this goat. That goat figuratively began to embody their sin began to take on their shame and their regret and their guilt, that goat metaphorically became their sin. So that goat wasn't slaughtered. That had already been done to another goat. Look at what was done to this goat, Leviticus chapter 16. I know you came into church hoping for Leviticus tonight, so I'm delivering. Here we are. And Aaron, he was the high priest, the first high priest really, shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, 
all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who's in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. It seems redundant, doesn't it? It uses three words that all pretty much mean the same thing. Iniquities, transgressions, and sins. Those are three out of the four words that are used to describe sin in the Old Testament. It's like he's covering all the bases. Anything you've done, anything you didn't do, anything that has incurred guilt on you, whether it was intentional or unintentional, you are guilty of all of it gets confessed and figuratively put on that goat. What I want you to see, the picture I want you to, to feel tonight is simply this. Their sins get taken away. They get removed. And said that the people, oftentimes what they would do is, as this goat was being led away into the wilderness, they would line the path of that goat and they would spit on that goat. They would pull its hair out sometimes. They would, they would curse at that goat and they would yell over and over and over again, away with him, away with him. So not only were the sins of the people atoned for, they were absorbed and paid for, but they were also taken away. And we talked about this last week. This is called the doctrine of expiation, which means the removal of shame. And it's the removal of shame for a purpose, and the purpose is to be made clean. Leviticus 16.30 says this, For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be what? Clean before the Lord from all your sins. Would anyone like to be clean before the Lord from all your sins? Yeah. That's what so many of us so desperately desire. We want to we be made clean. We want to feel clean. And we want to we we look in the mirror and say, that's a, that's a clean person who can stand before God. Which means we need someone to do something about this thing called shame. It's so present in our life. And when we talk about shame, I guess we should define our terms. In the Bible, the word shame is actually very closely related to a word we use called disgrace. In other words, Kind of the opposite of grace. It's a sense of being not enough, a sense of being unworthy, a sense of being exposed in your weakness, going, I'm a, I'm a disgrace. I'm not worthy of grace. So try to think back. Think about your life. When was the first time in your life that you ever felt real shame? When was it? What happened? Think about those other moments in your life when you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, yeah, that was a shameful moment in my life. That's something I'm ashamed of. What do those moments have in common? You see, shame comes from three places. It comes from in the things we've done. It comes in the things we, we did not do. And it comes in the things that have been done to us. Comes from the things we've done, the things we didn't do, and the things that have been done to us. The things we've done, a lot of us, we know this so well. Sometimes for us, it's not just what we've done, it's what we're currently doing. And the shame of what we've done and what we're currently doing becomes really, really crippling. It becomes paralyzing. See, shame leads to this overwhelming sense of being unclean or dirty. The biblical word for that is actually defiled. You, you just feel stained. And a lot of us in this room, we feel defiled because of the things that we've done, which leads us to do certain things. We hide, and we cover up, and we avoid. 
We isolate. All those things that we've been talking about lately. And that's the, that's the pattern that was set for us by our first parents, Adam and Eve, right? If you look back at Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sin, when they mess up, when they fail, when they rebel against God, what's the very first thing they do? They hide, they run away, and they avoid God and they cover up. That's what shame causes us to do. The primary way that Adam and Eve are described before they sinned was naked and what? Unashamed. They had nothing to be ashamed of. They had no reason to cover up. They, they were uncovered and exposed. They were known and they knew each other, but they didn't want to hide from one another. They didn't want to avoid eye contact with one another or eye contact with God because they had no shame in a good sense. But where there's sin, there's always shame. So when they sin, they're ashamed and they hide because of what they did. So many of us in this room, we're carrying the shame of things we've done. We, we feel less than and we feel like failures. We're so ashamed because of what we've done. So what do we do? Here's the question. What do we do with that shame? What do we do with it? But some of us in here, what we identify with is, is we feel shame because of something we didn't do. There's things in our life that we didn't do. For, for Adam, again, our first father, when, when, when he's standing there next to his wife as she's being tempted, what does Adam do? We've talked about this a million times in here. What does he do? Nothing. Nothing. He stands there and he passively watches as his wife is tempted and then they together sin and rebel against God. Adam didn't protect his wife. He didn't provide for his wife. He didn't intervene for his wife. He's passively standing there. I know people who've lived their entire lives out of a moment, a moment where they didn't protect someone. They look back at that shameful moment in their life when they didn't intervene, when they didn't stand up for somebody, and their whole life has been lived out of a response to that very moment. And oftentimes what we do with that kind of shame is we swing on a pendulum the other direction. We get very aggressive. We get very overprotective. I'm probably telling someone's story in here right now. You're going, I, I, I can identify with that. That's some of us in this room. You feel defiled and ashamed because of something you didn't do when you should have. So the question is the exact same question. What do you do with that shame? And then there's a lot of us in this room carrying the weight, not of something we've done, not of something that we didn't do, but rather something that someone did to us. The sense of defilement, of being dirty, of being stained, of being ruined, used up, and unworthy is so overwhelming for a lot of people in here. The number of people in this room have been raped, sexually molested, beaten, and abused is way over half of us. And that causes shame too. Because of something, a sin that was done to you. And that kind of shame is a very real thing. And a lot of times, people who are carrying around that kind of shame blame themselves. They think, man, I, I, I should have done better. I should have tried harder. I should have resisted more. I should have thought it through. I shouldn't have put myself in that situation. Whatever it is, fill in the blank. And when we do that, what we're ultimately doing is taking responsibility for someone else's sin. And you are not responsible for someone else's sin. L look right at me. You did not deserve what happened to you. You did not have it coming. You with me? You weren't asking for it. What was done to you is evil, it was wrong, and it was sinful. And it should not be allowed to define you. But for a whole lot of us in here, what was done to us is the most defining moment in our lives. Right now you're going, yes, this is desperately what I want. I want to be made to feel clean. I want to look at myself and know that I'm clean. 
But we have no idea how to get there. And so what we do is we live with shame and we get very, very accustomed to living with shame. And when you live with shame, it tends to show up in all kinds of different ways. Some that seem really significant, others that seem kind of insignificant. According to Brene Brown, who's done more research on shame than anybody I've ever even heard of, and other women I've talked to who experience shame, they, they all say that women have this tendency to experience shame primarily around appearance. Uh, appearance and feeling imperfect in different areas of their life. Uh, one woman said, shame says you aren't enough. Shame simply says, this is, this is shame's line, you're not enough. You're not enough physically, sexually, as a mother, as a wife, as a student, as an employee. You are simply not enough. You got to be perfect at all times, whatever it takes. So often what women do is they, you'll see this dynamic where, where they pick on one another they're really mean to each other. I don't know if you've ever seen a group of, of women start making fun of other women for being too sexy, too pretty, too flirty, or on the other end of the spectrum, for being too fat, too ugly, and too concerned about, about their work instead of their body or their children, or too concerned about their children instead of their work, whatever it is. I don't know if you've ever noticed this about, about women, is oftentimes women don't feel safe around other women because this, there's this profound sense of being damned if you do and damned if you don't, right? That's all about shame. Brene Brown has a whole chapter about this in her book, Daring Greatly, and she reflects this tension women feel, and all these statements I'm about to say for the next couple minutes are, are hers from that book. She says, be perfect, but don't make a fuss about it, and don't take time away from anything, like your family or your partner or your work, to achieve your perfection. If you're really good, perfection should come easy. Don't upset or hurt anyone's feelings, but say what's on your mind. Dial the sexuality way up after the kids are down, the dog is walked, and the house is clean, but dial it way down at the PTO meeting. And geez, whatever you do, don't confuse the two. You know how we talk about those PTO sex pots. <laughs> she keeps going with the tension. Just be yourself, but not if it means being shy or unsure. There's nothing sexier than self-confidence. Don't make people feel uncomfortable, but be honest. Don't get too emotional, but don't be detached either. Too emotional and you're hysterical, too detached and you're, you're a cold-hearted fill-in-the-blank, right? Ladies in the room, is any of that accurate? Here's some thoughts some, some women gave me around this. One woman said, women experience shame similar, similarly to men with regards to performance and fear of failure, wanting to be smart enough, whatever it is. But all of it comes down to being enough in some way. And she gave this example. Women who are confident can come across to other women as caring too much about their appearance or their health or their fitness or the job, whatever it is. Whereas a woman who, who hides, maybe they're overweight or unhealthy or have no concern for their appearance, they come off as not caring about themselves at all. So it's hard to find a balance because other women will criticize you on both sides. Women, is that true? Another woman said this, shame hides in the shoulds. I thought that was a powerful line. I should be better. I shouldn't do this. Women will work hard to be the perfect Christian wife, mom, employee. They will serve on every committee, attend every Bible study so that they can tell themselves they're doing it good enough. They will become highly critical of themselves 
and therefore of others as a way to deal with their sense of shame. Women constantly play the the superior-inferior game. I'm better than you, I'm worse than you, and either way, I don't have to be real with you. I'll be nice to your face, and I'll slam you behind your back so I feel better about myself. They'll become codependent co-addicts or control freaks in order to gain love and security and not have to feel their shame. I'll let you control me or define me, or I will control you and everything in my world. I'll focus on you and make it all about you, then you'll like me, and then perhaps maybe I'll feel good. Is that starting to get below the surface, ladies? Shame has the exact same message for men, though. You're not enough. It's the same voice. You're not enough. But for men, it primarily revolves around performance. Performance. And it capitalizes on failure. It pounces on failure. In those moments where men fail, the voices we hear are you're soft, you're weak, you're not a man, you're not enough, you're not enough sexually, you're not the provider you should be, you're not the protector you should be, you can't deliver when it counts, you're a screw up, you're a failure, you're worthless. Shame is about failure for men. That's why getting fired, losing a job, messing up at our work, or underperforming in any way, shape, or form is literally one of the most shameful things that we can ever experience in our life. So men, when we experience shame, what do we do? Usually one of two things. We either shut down entirely, especially emotionally, or we get really, really angry. Really, really mad. We either get really passive or we get really, really aggressive. But they're both just ways that we've designed to hide our shame. Because men, we've all grown up with a lot of experiences where when we were weak, when we failed, when we messed up, other men primarily attacked and pounced. Locker room moments abound. And as men, the question becomes, what do we do with that? Shame is failure for men. And when we fail, we get either really passive or really aggressive. So this is why for for us as men, being criticized or ridiculed is one of the most shameful experiences we can go through. Years ago, I don't know if you remember this book that came out, the the Five Love Languages book. Remember remember that one? And you take a little test and you find out what your primary love languages were and things like that. And I'm no expert and this is just my opinion. But I think for most men, one of our primary love languages is that words of affirmation piece. We really, 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 really want attaboys. We really, really, really want words of affirmation, someone to tell us that we're, we're doing a good job, that we're performing very well. And when we don't get those things, shame creep, creeps in and doubt creeps in. We start to wonder and shame starts to run our life. And then when we get the opposite of, of just praise, when we get absolute criticism, when we get that, man, shame kicks the door in and invades our entire life. And again, when it does, we either shut down and hide so that we never take any risks, we never get exposed again, we never fail again because we never, ever, ever want to feel that way again. And that's the goal. We never want to feel that again. So we either just shut it down or we get so over-the-top aggressive that we head it off at the pass so that we don't have to feel shame again. So we strike first and we strike hard. See, shame is the reason for a lot of us as men that things that seem like such a little thing turn into such a big thing. Things that seem like insignificant moments, we blow up or we shut down. I'll give you an example in my life. I am not very handy at all 
Like I can't fix anything, I just break it worse. I can't build anything, I can't assemble anything. So, so consequently, when I have those moments in my life where something does need to be fixed or assembled or made or whatever that is, and I, I need to do it, man, I get so over the top angry so fast, it's unbelievable. My poor family has to watch that happen. So it happens all the time. Like, like Christmas Day two years ago, I, I bought a basketball goal for our family. I'm assembling it on Christmas Day in the garage, it clearly states on the box, no less than three people should do this together. Of course, I try to do it all by myself in the garage on Christmas Day. My wife, who's been serving everybody for two days, has a fever, has the flu, is, is in the house. The kids are in the house trying to exhort, uh, enjoy their Christmas. And I turn into this yelling, screaming, cursing maniac in the garage who starts demanding everything of everybody all the time and makes everybody miserable for most of Christmas. Why? has nothing to do with the basketball goal. has everything to do with this little voice in the back of my head that says, a real man could do this without any problem. What's your problem? has nothing to do with whatever needs to be fixed around the house. It has everything to do with what's going on inside of me is I feel like a failure. And it's that performance thing. And it's, it's that voice in the back of your head that says a real man could live up to this task. Men in this room, does any of that sound familiar to anyone? Yeah. See, shame is a huge motivator in our lives. And you compound that with the fact that men and women, we have these unique tendencies to push one another further into our shame. And the reason we're, we're really good at this is because we're broken and we're sinful and we're in desperate need of being made clean. So men, if in any way you heap extra pressure on her to pretend she's okay when she's not okay, when you pile on pressure for her to keep up appearances, oh man, that's the, that's the fastest way to putting shame right on her shoulders. Women, when you attack a man's performance in any way, shape, or form, just know what you're doing. You're piling shame right on his shoulders. Now listen, those are all just symptoms those are just ways of kind of identifying whether we're wrestling or dealing or carrying shame or not. But they're all symptoms of a much deeper disease called shame, which is rooted in sin. So the question remains, what are you supposed to do with it? What are you supposed to do with shame? And the Bible's really clear. You weren't meant to walk in darkness. You weren't meant to carry your shame. You, weren't meant to you were meant to walk in the light and freedom and joy and to be free from the shame of your past. That's what you were meant for. Look at 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have what? Fellowship with one another, connection with each other. And the blood of Jesus, his son, does what? cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we're, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to, here's the word again, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the path to cleansing, to being made clean, to feeling clean, to seeing yourself as clean. And the path, there's only one, and it's the blood of Jesus. So for those of us in this room who are followers of Jesus, you need to understand this. Objectively, we're clean. We are clean. We are free. The stain of sin and shame and guilt has been removed from us. The problem is a lot of us, we just don't feel that. We don't see ourselves that way. And this is just my opinion based on my experience in my life. 
If you're not feeling what you actually are, if you're not seeing yourself for who you actually are as it pertains to shame, honesty is a big piece of this. What I mean is simply this. We have a, we have a choice, and it's to conceal or to confess. Those are our choices. And a lot of times, this was my life for a long time, the choice was to conceal for as long as possible. The plan was to conceal until I died. That, that, that has been the plan for a lot of us, and that is the choice. Because here's the deal. It requires courage to confess, doesn't it? it requires a lot of courage. Proverbs says it this way. Whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds what? Mercy. I don't know who said it first, but it's true. You're as sick as your secrets. You're as sick as your secrets. That's why a lot of us feel really, really sick. So let's take some inventory. Look at what you did. Look at what you didn't do. Look at what was done to you. And there comes a time and there comes a place where you need to name those for what they are appropriately call them what they really are and don't use soft language around it we're so good at using qualifying language around our sin and our shame have you ever noticed this it's our way of kind of like not really facing it down it's a way of kind of letting ourselves or someone else off the hook and not just calling things what they actually are but I believe when you speak your secret and your shame out loud there's power in that so we say things all the time like this. Well, I, I, I struggle with looking at inappropriate websites. No. Say what it is. You're addicted to pornography and masturbation. And we'll say things like, you know, sometimes in business, you've got to be willing to do some questionable things to, to make it, to, to get ahead. No, just call it what it is. You are regularly choosing to break the law, lie, and steal. Well, I had an affair. No, you committed adultery. I just like nice things. No, you're a selfish person who would never dream of being generous. I'm just concerned about her. That's why I brought it up. No, you're a gossip looking for any opportunity to hurt someone else. He didn't respect my boundaries. You were sexually assaulted. That's what happened. And the list goes on and on and on. But in naming these things... In bringing them to the light and confessing them to one another, those things, those sins, lose their power over us, and we have the opportunity to have connection, or the way First John put it, fellowship with one another. The way we put it around here is simply what? Me too. Me too. Instead of condemning one another, we bring love to one another. We forgive one another, and we help one another, and we encourage one another. But this takes and requires real courage to open your mouth and to speak those words. And sometimes it's a literal, literal just count to three and say it. it requires courage. It also requires confidence in Christ. Confidence in Christ. If you read through the Old Testament, you read Leviticus and you read about the tabernacle and the temple and all that, what you'll find is that over and over again, there are all these ritual washings, all this ceremonial washing. There's water everywhere. There's, in, the, in the tabernacle and the temple, there was a, a, big, a big fountain with water where people could, could do these ceremonial washings. What, why do you think that is? What was God up to with all that? He just want people to have clean hands? 
No, it's all a foreshadowing of how we would one day be made clean permanently by Jesus. Hebrews makes it really, really clear. You'll come across this as we study this for the next few weeks. But all those sacrifices, all those washings, all that ritual, blood of bulls and goats and all of that was inadequate for actually accomplishing the task. That's why it had to be done over and over and over again. It was all an act of faith on people's behalf so that they could say, this is my act of faith. I'm looking forward to one day where God totally provides for me the ultimate sacrifice. None of it was adequate for truly removing sin and shame. But fortunately, what we have, looking back to Jesus, is we have a perfect sacrifice. We have a better sacrifice. Look at what John the Baptist said about his cousin Jesus when he saw him walking towards him one day in John 1.29. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What's Jesus do? He takes away the sins of the world. In John 19, the Jews are given a vote on whether they want Jesus to be released or whether they want him to be crucified. And what do they say? Take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. Crucify him. And then he was mocked. He was spit on. They tore out his beard. He was beaten. And he was crucified. Does any of that sound familiar? What did they do to that goat on the Day of Atonement? And as they're screaming, away with him, away with him, little do they know, he's literally taking away the sins of the world. Hebrews 12, and we'll come back to this probably several times in this series, says this, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to who? Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the, give me the word, shame. Despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Everything about God's intentions towards us is locked up in those three verses. You want to know? About God the Father's intentions towards you, look at what God the Son has done for you. Are we meant to walk through this life with this heavy burden of shame and regret of our past sins weighing us down? No. Those verses say we're meant to run this race steadily with our eyes set on Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith. In other words, Jesus has has been through this. He's completed this. He's run every race and he ran it perfectly. And instead of looking back at us and condemning us and going, why can't you do better? You should try harder. He says, I have done this perfectly for you. Instead of condemning us, he brings us literally behind the curtain so that we can have a relationship with God our Father. He despised the shame. And in some translations it says he scorned the shame of the cross. He scorned the disgrace of the cross. In other words, he stood against it. He held it in contempt. He identified it for what it was and he became it. 2 Corinthians 5.21, I come back to it almost every other sermon I preach around here. God made him who had no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Listen to me. If anyone has ever felt shame, it was Jesus. If anyone has ever felt the weight of being exposed in the midst of weakness, it was Jesus naked hanging on a cross His beard pulled out, flogged, shouted at, cursed at, and bleeding and abused in front of everybody. 
hanging on a cross. If anyone knows what it's like to be held down and brutalized, it was Jesus. If anyone knows what it's like to have something just horrifically evil done to you, it's Jesus. Jesus is incredible. He, Jesus and only Jesus had the power to take away the sins of the rapist and the shame of the one who was being raped. Jesus, as he was hanging on that cross, became a disgrace so that we could receive grace. Jesus, as he was hanging on that cross, embodied all of your sin, all of your shame, all of your regret. He became the sexual abuse that you committed. He became your cowardly inaction. He became your shame. And when they pulled him off of that cross and buried him in the ground, your sin was removed. It was taken away, finally. And there is not a sin that he hasn't seen. There's not a sin that he didn't expect. There's not a sin that he didn't see coming. There are no surprises in sin to Jesus. He died to take them all away to make you clean. And he did it by his blood. And so many of us, we've been spending our whole lives trying to make ourselves clean. And we're just not there yet because it's not possible. The only way to be made clean is by the blood of Jesus. There's this old hymn that asks the question, What can wash away my sin? And then it answers it. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow, no other fount I know. Sing it. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's stand and sing it together.